Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking a little bit about, well, you know, when you ask people about genetic medicine, there's a consensus. Uh, even in our polarized country, there's a consensus. People say like, oh, well, I, I, we like to use um, reproductive technology to, to have healthier children but not to have better children, not, not to improve, to, to reduce disease, but not to improve traits and so on. And that's kind of the way people tend to look at it, what they're comfortable with, what they're more comfortable with. But anybody that's worked in the field for any length of time knows when you actually want to separate those things, what's, what's a disease and what's a character trait and what's healthy and what's not healthy. And it gets very complicated, very fast, not simple at all. And I think the challenges in these areas of, of what are we trying to do with genetic medicine have really only just begun to surface. And so today I have a, I'm very excited to have a, uh, Ethan Weiss here. Ethan is a cardiologist at the University of California at San Francisco specializing in preventive cardiology and, among other things, the genetics of cardiovascular disease. And there's a lot of things he could be talking to us about today. In fact, I... I sort of fell down a rabbit hole reading up on Ethan for this intro and learned a great deal about the ketogenic diet. So thank you very much for that. But uh, You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. But uh, today Ethan is here to talk about genetics. He's here both as a scientist and, to use a hackneyed term, a stakeholder, because his views on genetic disease are influenced not only by his professional experience, but by his personal experience as the father of a daughter with a genetic condition. So just to go backwards a bit, um, I read an article that Ethan had written about his personal experience, which you can read uh, in a slightly edited form in stat, um, and immediately messaged him saying, I was so moved by this story and by the thoughtfulness and uh, how you reflected about what it meant and the sort of actually the modesty with which you came at trying to figure out what it meant and asked him immediately to come on and, and talk to us a little bit. But maybe... You'll share a bit of that story with us. So your wife was pregnant with child number two in, I was trying to figure it out, 1996 or 97? No, no, no. So, uh, no, no, no. Uh, Ten years. So she, Ruthie was born in, in oh, August of 2006. I was off by a factor. Yeah, okay. So. Yeah, a decade. Yeah, yeah. yeah, off by a decade. Um, so math skills, not my song. Sorry, story. she'd be happy to be 23 and not 13. <laughs> I bet you wouldn't be. No. No. <laughs> So what testing were you offered? Do you even remember? Oh, sure. So my, uh, let's see, I don't remember exactly how old she was, uh, but she was at the age where they offered us testing. We had, uh, I think actually we'd had the sort of routine regular screening test that people do for chromosomal abnormalities. But then I think we had had an amniocentesis with our first daughter. And I believe that they basically defaulted into doing an amnio with the second pregnancy as well. So we definitely had an amnio uh, with our with both daughters, both and, kids. And with the assumption was that if there was something wrong that could be picked up on amnio, that she would act on that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we all sort of, well, I shouldn't say we all. Obviously, there are pl plenty of people who don't, but I think many of us default into that uh, without thinking about it much. Um, certainly many people do. Yeah. So your daughter's born and there wasn't anything immediately obvious. Well, so there was the title of the original piece that I wrote for this, um, for this journal perspectives in biology was, was called Billy Idol. So we joked when she was born cause she was born with a, a lot of very white hair. And so we jokingly called her Billy Idol when she was a brand new baby. Uh, but I was a towhead and my wife was a towhead and our other daughter who was almost three at the time was also quite blonde. And so we sort of talked ourselves into thinking that she just had a shade lighter than the rest of us, but otherwise no, nothing else. Yeah. So when did you first start to notice anything? Well, I didn't. And I was, um, was and remains sort of a, a minimalist when it comes to medicine, but well, I should say my health or the health of my family. Mm -hmm. But my wife did notice something, and that was probably around the time that Ruthie was about four week, four weeks old. She she uh, she actually uh, would notice it more when she was with other people's kids and could compare 
you know, her, our kid, our kid to their, to theirs. And she came home a few times and said there was, there's something wrong with her. And of course I, I completely dismissed it and said, <laughs> let me guess you know, your wife is not it. a physician. She's not, uh, she is not. And, uh, yeah, I'm a and I think, you know, this all sounds super familiar. Yeah. The doctor's like, yeah. are you bleeding? Are you bleeding in yeah. front of me? But everything's fine. Yeah. Well, and the funny thing is that I am also a doctor's kid, but my dad is the sort of, I don't know if he's the exception, but he's the other way around. So anytime I, you know, sneezed, he took me for a CAT scan. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was my reaction to him was, was probably to, to become completely dismissive of anything other than, you know, like organs falling out of your body. <laughs> you know, my father was, my father was like, absolutely just what you're describing, the he always assumed it was nothing. He always called me a hypochondriac every time I told And the joke of it was, I had my first major surgery at 10 days old. Like, I was not wow. that kid. I was like, wow. was like, why? Why do you keep assuming I'm making these things up? But anyway, we don't need to work out my whole childhood here on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Next time. Yeah, next time. So what did you... Um, thank you for the therapy. You can charge me later. What did you... Right. What did you sort of say, well, maybe I should take this seriously? Right. So I uh, have this vivid recollection of a day. It was a Friday. I know it was a Friday because I remember what happened after, but it was a Friday afternoon and I was sick. And at, uh, back in the old days when you got sick, if you were tough and trained the way I was trained, you went to work. Uh, that's probably not the way things are supposed to work today, especially today. But Public service but announcement. Some, Don't do that today. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, Back then, I never stayed home from work, but I decided to stay home from work probably because I just didn't feel very well, but also because I thought it would be kind of fun to spend the day with my now six-week-old baby. And so we did what you know six-week-old babies and sick adults do, which is basically sleep the whole day. And I remember getting up in the afternoon to change her diaper and put her on the uh, on her back on our bed, and I noticed that her eyes were moving back and forth in this kind of rhythmic way and and that sort of sparked something in my very adult brain that reminded me of something I'd learned in medical school and I thought that's that's just not normal and so I just went to the computer I I really think I literally left her on the bed just lying there and went to the computer to you know start searching around and figure out what it was that was bothering me and so I searched for this term the medical term for what I saw in her eyes is called nystagmus. And so I searched, basically searched infant nystagmus and the list of things that came up was just horrible. I mean, it was a lot of very bad degenerative neurological conditions. But as I scanned down the list, I saw oculocutaneous albinism and then the whole Billy Idol thing sort of kind of came back. And it was sort of at that moment that I realized that this kid did not have normally white hair. She, that this is, this kid probably had albinism mm-hmm. and a light bulb moment. It literally was like a light bulb going off. And, and so then I really had to kind of think about when my wife was at work and my other daughter was at, you know, preschool and I had to think about how I was going to kind of tell her what I had thought, thought I discovered when she got home from work and, and, and ultimately, uh, just told her directly. I mean, it was a, uh, bad, weird situation. Cause I was, you know, really not feeling that well. And I was emotional and, and I knew she was going to be emotional, but, but I told her, and you know, we both had an incredibly emotional reaction that lasted, you know, the better part of the next three days until we had a confirmation of the diagnosis from, uh, from Ruthie's ophthalmologist in, in the office on Monday. And, um, it lasted until then did speaking to the ophthalmologist make you feel better? I mean, I, I would assume that would be a a little bit of a journey before you would actually sort of feel okay that you had a handle on what her future was going to be like. Right. So, I mean, I think you hear from people a, a lot that part of part of the issue is just knowing. And so I think while I was pretty confident, I think there was some relief in knowing that this is what it was and that it wasn't something worse. Now, I haven't written about this, but there's a, there was a sort of sideways turn somewhere along the way later on where our pediatrician actually did think that Ruthie had something worse that she didn't end up having. But I think uh, at the beginning, we were relieved that, that it wasn't one of those other 38 conditions on the list. 
But then, of course, there was, you know, tremendous amount of anxiety and angst over what, what it was and what it would be. And, you know, Dr. Day, Susan Day, who was the, Ruthie's ophthalmologist back then, was was spectacular and was direct and was, uh, you know, basically she'd done this before and she knew what was in our minds and she knew the questions we were thinking and uh, and was able to begin to allay some of our biggest concerns, which were, you know, really around what was going to happen down the line to her, uh, you know, mostly around her vision. But, but of course, we also had spent a lot of time thinking not just about her disability that she was going to have to live with, but, but that she was going to be this kid who was visibly different and that she'd have to live in a world that may not be friendly to people with differences. And so, you know, there was this movie that was playing out kind of in real time and we, we were also anticipating what was going to happen along the way in, in her future. And, and, but, but getting the information, getting the diagnosis from Dr. Day was, was I think a relief in more than anything else. And so leaping ahead, your daughter is 13 now? I get that she right? is. She is. Okay. You're right. first, first thing I've gotten right really today. Um, no. And has, how, have, how has her experience played out compared to what you were worried about? Right. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, so one of the first questions we wanted to know was what, well, how bad will her, will her vision be? I mean, I guess let, let me step back and say, I think there are really two broad categories here that we had concern over. One was the physical limitations that she would have given her disability, but the other was the kind of emotional burden of the, of the, you know, being different, uh, and whatever might happen socially mm-hmm. and emotionally to her. So, uh, obviously as an infant, we, there was no social emotional, right? We didn't have any, I mean, she seemed like she was actually from the very beginning, a very happy kid. She's happened to remain that way throughout her life, but we, we weren't as concerned at that moment about that. We were more worried about what her physical limitations were going to be. And Dr. Day had told us that Ruth, she anticipated Ruthie's vision would be, uh, her visual acuity would be 20, roughly between 2100 and 2200, which, you know, for people who don't, uh, aren't used to those kinds of numbers that means that a normally sighted person could see from 20 sorry 200 feet ruthie would would have to be 20 feet away that's the sort of typical visual acuity measurement and she said you know she might be able to drive a car but it would have to be with you know significant assistance and she said she'll she should be able to go to regular school and she's not going to need braille and she probably won't need a guide dog and she probably won't need to walk with a cane. I mean, these were all the sort of immediate questions that we had. Uh, and of course, you know, a young kid is not touch. She doesn't communicate other than just sort of smiling and giggling. Uh, so we didn't have any way to know, uh, what it meant to her mm-hmm. back then. So at the beginning, you know, we sort of were able to take our time to get used to all of this while she was still mostly just a pretty normal looking baby with, with white blonde hair. Kind of a, uh, kind everyone's of a blessing. Wild. Kind of a blessing to be able to work through your adult reaction without having the child be old enough to look at you and be taking their cues from you. You know, like you could feel what yeah. you felt. If she's five, she would be watching you, and you would have to try and control your reaction for her. Absolutely. And, and we were fortunate, I think, also that our older daughter, who was, you know, not even three at the time, was also not really super aware of what was going on. I, I did. I don't know if I told the story in this article, but I've told the story before that we did end up going to see a therapist to to help us a little bit process what it was going to be like as a family, but mostly to help us figure out how we were going to communicate things or how we should communicate things, both you know in, in our family, but outside to the outside world. And, uh, you know, we sort of I think we're very aligned from the beginning on how we felt about about sharing the story that we weren't going to run away from it. I think there are some families with this condition who either intentionally or otherwise pretend that it doesn't exist. And we, we were not going to be that family. But but of the hour that we spent in this therapist's office, we probably spent, you know, 10 minutes talking about Ruthie and then 50 minutes talking about our, you know, genetically normal uh, three year old toddler. So, uh I think that was a preview of what was going to come <laughs> for us. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So I'm going to go back to the question I asked. This was your concerns and your worries when she was tiny. You had 
what you described to me in terms of prognosis with her vision, I would describe as like kind of really comforting, but in a very kind of uncomforting way because it's like, oh, good, look at all these absolute worst case scenarios things that aren't going to happen. But at the same time, a pretty serious impairment. Uh, and I think it is scarier when you find things out and your child is small and it's all in front of you, you know? It's a long time before you can settle into feeling like you know what normal is and that you have a handle on what this is going to look like for the future. Yeah, I think we, we very quickly we were we grew comfortable with what we expected Ruthie's uh visual impairment to be. I think we all, we anticipated that technology was changing, that the impact on her would be real, but that it wouldn't be devastating. And it was funny. We, we actually probably were more concerned about the albinism, the otherness part of it, probably mostly because of the way uh, people with albinism had been portrayed in movies and television. And I, I distinctly remember, you know, one of my favorite movies as a kid was a movie that was filmed here in San Francisco called Foul Play. And there was a character, it was a Chevy Chase movie, and there was a character in that movie called the Albino. And he was this like scary, really like scary creature. I just remember being terrified. Yeah. 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 And he he was terrifying. And I think we both had this moment of like, my God, this is our kid. Our kid is going to be that, that like terrifying force and that she's not going to have any friends and she's never going to date. So I think our concerns at that time were much more around that. I mean, we, we were able other parents and families people with with albinism and they were all you know we in fact dr day had introduced us to a colleague of hers who at that point had an 18 year old daughter who was off to college and was thriving and you know we had people introduce us to you know people who were professional ballet dancers other people who were just thriving in the world and it made it clear to us that she probably would be able to do a lot if not most of the things that she wanted to do Short of, you know, she's not going to be a professional tennis player or, you know, right, right. a pilot. You know, me, there were things that she was. Me neither, at, by the way. Me yeah, neither. Right. Yeah. Right. So, so, yeah. But but we were at the beginning, I think, more concerned about the psychosocial, emotional part of it. Um, you know, we did wanted, we, we didn't, we had this fear that our kid was going to end up being an outsider, an, an other, somebody who was, was going to be shunned. And, uh, and, and, how, and, and how I take it from your tone of voice that that has not proved to be so. No, it's funny, but there were some moments along the way, and I won't mention the name of the school, but when we were looking for kindergarten for our older daughter, so she's three three years older and three years ahead, and we were looking for kindergarten for her, and we went to one of these school fairs, and uh, at that time, we, you know, Ruthie was two, and she was running around, and she was just the happiest person, little person you could be, and we were, uh, you know, we were, we were doing great. But we knew that she was going to require more attention and support from wherever it was that she ended up in school. So we would ask these schools sort of, look, we've got this kid who's going to come next year, but we're really interested in having a conversation about the next kid who's going to come in three years. And what kind of sort what what's your philosophy and what kind of accommodations can you make and how can you support her and this and that? Because we really wanted our daughters to go to the same school and didn't want to have to do this whole thing you know, twice. So we did hear from a one school in particular who said flat out, we don't, uh, this is not the right school for you. And our girls, it was a girl's school. And they said something like our girls spend a lot of, of time outside and it's a very big campus and we just don't think it's probably going to work. And, uh, I mean, I wish I could paint, visually paint the, the look on my wife's face when she heard this, uh, poor woman, uh, utter that sentence. And, Obviously, we didn't end up at that school, but we did end up at a at an incredible school that was, that was that Ruthie still goes to now in seventh grade. That was incredibly supportive, amazingly supportive to her and to us as a family throughout the entire time that we've been there now over ten years. Yeah, well, that's great. That's that's wonderful. Uh, I would be in your wife's shoes. I would be. Uh, <laughs> I would be like maybe a little on the attack, like a little, it a little was tigerish. Yeah. With somebody saying that it's basically just saying like. We're not what we're used to. We don't want to be pushed to deal with anything we're not comfortable with. Um, yeah, and on the one hand, I guess they get some points for being honest. But on the other hand, it was just to me, it, it uh, it's one of the things, and it kind of gets to something we may end up discussing about diversity. And I think it was just one of the things that they were clearly saying that they weren't interested in any diversity. And, and their loss, right? I mean, they, they, uh, they missed an opportunity for 
those kids to experience, you know, living with and going to school with somebody who experiences the world in a very different way. And, it, and I think that's been positive and a hugely positive impact on Ruthie's friends and peers. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit, a little bit now. How does Ruthie experience the world in a, in a different way? Like what's different in, you have two daughters, what, and they're I'm sure they're very different personalities, but insofar as you can locate it to the condition, how does it change Ruthie's day to day life? Yeah. So I, at, at school, I would say pre, I don't know, fourth grade, fifth grade, it's sort of a hippie dippy school. So they, they do things at their own pace. And, uh, so there really wasn't sort of an academic impact. Uh, and there really wasn't a social impact. I mean, the school is incredibly supportive. My wife, I, I'll, I'll never forget that she, you know, the, the week before Ruthie was going to start then in, in pre-kindergarten, this was in the whatever fall of, I guess, 2010 or something. Uh, she called the head of the school at the time and said, I want to, I'd like to come in and, you know, when she was in preschool, I told all the teachers sort of what to expect. And we were, we went through the school and we put yellow tape down just so, cause you know, Ruthie would fall down the stairs cause she wouldn't see, she wouldn't see them. And so she basically said, can I come in and meet everybody who might interact with her and also do some kind of adjustment to the physical plan? And he said, of course. And so she shows up and I think I was away with both of the girls visiting family on the East coast. And she called me in tears after this meeting. And she said, well, I showed up at this meeting and I had asked Scott to, you know, just include people who would be interacting with Ruthie directly. And he said, she said, every single person employee of the school was there. Literally every single person, Scott said, this is so important. I want everyone to be here. And that was a preview of how amazingly supportive an environment it was going to be. And they went out of their way, you know, to make sure that she was never seen as anything other than just the same student. And she was never, you know, uh, made to feel any more different than she was. Uh, so, I mean, at the beginning it was mostly just about like getting her to remember to wear her hat and sunglasses and put on sunscreen. I think that was the, you know, when she was in kindergarten or first grade, it was, wasn't that big of a deal. We did, you know, eventually have to deal with, uh, making accommodations for her to be able to read materials, uh, either like on a board or in a book. And, uh, we've, you know, been really fortunate. We were very lucky to have the resources to be able to afford some of the assistive technologies that exist today. And so we've had, you know, various different things along the way and the school's been great. And actually the city and County of San Francisco has been great in helping us all figure out what, what, you know, will will work for Ruthie in the classroom. Uh, and, and the truth is that's all been great and she is thriving academically and she's thriving socially. I mean, she's, um, she's, there's, she's, amazing. And I think, uh, there was, there was really, that ended up being zero issue for us. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned in your article that you saw a tweet from Dan MacArthur and and I, um, so we can talk whatever smack we want about Dan now because he's in Australia. He can't, (laughs) can't hurt us. Um, saying that, uh, no, hi Dan MacArthur. Um, saying that, Embryo, embryo screened and gene edited would be for his children's generation like vaccinations that he fully expected them to be embryo screened, gene edited. And you had a real reaction to that comment, right? Um, the, I, I did. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I reacted and that was probably the first time that I had reacted in a public way. I mean, I think we, had privately had conversations with the friends and family, but I think everybody was struck by Ruthie, by her, the, the sort of force of her personality, but also the force of her will to do anything. I mean, she, this kid was not going to be told that she couldn't do anything. I mean, she, uh, we were really lucky to meet an amazing organization that helped us, uh, get her up on skis and guided her and taught us, eventually taught us how to guide her ourselves. And skiing was and remains a really important part of our, our lives and our activities. And I mean, she was just not, she was going to do whatever it was. It didn't matter. And she was never going to be told no. And for the most part, we were going to let her do what she was going to do. And we were going to, you know, worry about the consequences later and worry about her falling down. So I reacted in a way where I said, you know, I think basically I, I would be, I, it was, I think the first time I thought out loud that I would be sad not to have had the experience of having this kid in the world, as she is. And that I thought she was, um, you know, she at that time was young. You know, she, I don't know. That was 
probably she was probably not even 10. And, and I think, and I said, I, I would, I think the world's better off. I think, uh, I think I'm better off. And I think it would be sad if she wasn't here that way. And, um, and that, you know, led to a conversation online, you know, we sort of got into it. And I think we, you know, both stood our ground and, um, I think it was a very respect, respectful, it was a model of how to have one of these conversations on Twitter without getting personal. And, uh, I, you know, I have tremendous respect for Dan. Uh, and I just told him my perspective. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of pieces of that to get at. Um, you said if you had a third child, which you didn't do, you would not have tested. So you, it's a autosomal recessive condition. So, you know, you'd be at 25% chance of having another child with albinism. And you said, so we, you didn't really get to that conversation, but you wouldn't have tested. No, we, we would. And that was clear. I mean, we, we didn't end up having a third kid just because it, you know, you don't need to explain your, we were, your, right. your well, well, we were older and I mean, it was, there were reasons, but we actually did consider, we had never planned on having a third child. We'd always planned on having two. There was a moment in time where we did consider having a third child and people are going to find this. Some people might find this. Um, I don't know if you want to use the word offensive, but some people might think that I'm, that this is crazy, but we did for a moment think we should have a, a that it would be great for Ruthie to have a companion for somebody to share this experience with. And maybe the best thing would be that we'd have another kid with albinism. At that point, we knew that this was not going to be a devastating disease. This was not going to be something that was going to impact how long she would live, that she'd be able to do pretty much anything. And we saw how she was thriving and we thought, you know, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to have another, you know, to have the two of them go through this together. So we did briefly consider that, but we absolutely would not have tested for it, uh, in, you know, uh, prospective way if we had decided to, to have a third Would kid. you have tested for the things you tested for before? Would you have done the, oh, gosh. so that, that's, that's wow. what I was wondering. Yeah. I mean, this gets to the, like, yeah. I mean, the p- part of the conversation that I've been having a lot recently is sort of where you draw this line. And, you know, I think I know where, how I feel, I know how I feel about albinism. I know I wouldn't test for albinism. I know I certainly wouldn't test, you know, I wouldn't think about anything to the left of that, you know, sort of trait wise heights, you know, strength, intelligence, stuff like that. Would there be things that I would test for that would be more on the, you know, more serious side? And it's such a hard, this is ultimately the problem, right? You just don't know until you know. And there's so much fear about the unknown. And all I can say is that we would have tested for, if somebody had said you can screen for albinism in 2006 and you can make sure you wouldn't have a kid with albinism, we would have done that. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind we would have done that. And there's no doubt in my so mind that we would not do that today. really thinking about it. Like, oh. Well, I think, again, all I have to do is go back to the moment that I sat down with my wife Palmer to tell, to tell her about this condition and the reaction that we both had over that weekend of just fear and terror and, and why me and, you know, this is the worst thing. And if there was a way to make it all go away then, I mean, obviously not make her go away, but if we could have made the whole thing go away, then it's we would have. So clearly, yeah, right. Yeah, it's, right. I, I can't answer the question about what, where the, what the, where the line gets drawn for me and whether it's such an interesting question. I haven't actually been asked about whether I'd test for, you know, chromosomal abnormalities, uh, in an, right, uh, right. it's such an interesting question. So you can set up I, I a spectrum, like you're saying, yep. I know what's yep. on to this side of the spectrum. I know that, well, you're a cardiologist. So like, I know I wouldn't bother to test for like a higher or lower risk susceptibility to cardiovascular disease, right? I'm not going to pick child with that. Um, so you can set up the that end. And I could probably set up the other end for you too, right? Like the trisomies, I put them together, but they're not, you know, trisomy 13, trisomy 18, usually lethal, very serious, a lot of suffering, pain, sickness involved. You might very well right. be tempted to test for that. I- but people who yeah, have kids I, with Down syndrome often say things that are a lot like you. I've had guests on who sort of say, like, I'm not against prenatal screening, but I'm just sort of saying, hey, maybe Down syndrome isn't the thing that you need to be so scared of. Well, and I had heard that, you know, long before Ruthie was born. I'd heard that during my medical training that, you know, uh, there was this sort of case that people were making that it was, you were sort of eradicating the people called Down syndrome the happy gene, like the, the that this was like, 
these kids were lovely and amazing. And so, you know, look, it's always a personal thing. And I, that's one thing I've learned in having these conversations is I certainly don't want to portray to anyone that I'm making a judgment that I want to impose on anyone else. I, I can say from my perspective that ultimately what does matter, you hit the nail on the head. It's about pain and suffering of the child. And, uh, and for us, it's easy with albinism because we see this kid who's just absolutely thriving. Will she have, you know, obstacles in the future? Is she going to have moments where she wishes she didn't have it? Maybe. But as of today, I mean, she's, and again, I adore both my kids, but we have the perfect controlled experiment. We have one <laughs> daughter with, you know, who's ostensibly genetically completely normal and one who has this, you know, genetic disease or condition or whatever you want to call it. And I can tell you uh, which one, at least as of today, is is um, better adjusted, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, okay, the one okay. who um, yeah. Ethan Weiss's children are not allowed to listen to this podcast. <laughs> it's all well, no, and I, this is actually, I mean, we can, th- this is a serious thing. I think that, you know, the, uh, being the sibling of a kid with a kid, uh, being the sibling of a uh, child with differences is hard. And I think my daughter, my other daughter has had a much harder time with this than Ruthie has. And, uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that I think it's actually been a harder, a bigger burden for her than it has been for Ruthie. And we could spend hours talking about that. Um, and, but anyway, my point is I think Ruthie's, uh, by every measure that we can come up with, you know, is, is thriving. And, uh, and more importantly than anything else, like this conversation, that, that t- Twitter exchange with Dan led ultimately to a, um, a, a report, a, a journalist from who was at the time writing for Nature, named Erica Check Hyden, to reach out to me to ask if she she was going to write a, a piece on gene editing of children, and she wanted to know if she could feature us in that piece. This was 2015, and I said sure. And before I did so, I said I better ask Ruthie if she, you know, how she feels. And so I sat down with her, and she was nine at the time. And I said, "Are you?" Basically, I had the conversation with her about, you know, are you happy with who you are, and if you could change who you are, would you want to change it? And if you could have not had this condition when you were born, would you not want to have it? And then I asked her the, and all the answers were, you know, no, I love who I am. I don't want to change it. But then I asked her the question and I continue to ask her that question a lot about what will you do when you have kids? Assuming you have kids, are you going to screen? Would you want to have a child with albinism or not? And obviously, you know, so much of this is tied up in her identity. And, um, you know, as of today, I think, she's she'd be thrilled i think she'd be thrilled to have a kid with albinism um and you know so that, it's, it's um you know that you could you could say one of two things I, I get what you're saying you could say one of two things you could say like i have this fantastic kid and if i had chosen to weed out that embryo because of albinism i wouldn't have gotten this fantastic kid and i just can't picture life without her it's a lot of different things you could also say so that would be like I wouldn't want to have made that decision uh, then and missed this child, but that would still leave room for, obviously, if I could fix her vision tomorrow, I would. But I've heard people also say, what you see as a disease or condition is so integral to my child, I don't know if I would fix them if I could, because they would then be a different person. Well, yeah, that, and that's heavy. I mean, and we, we used to wonder because Ruthie was so starkly happy as a baby. And we used to wonder if maybe, you know, maybe part of the reason that she was so happy was that she sort of had this like muted view of the world and she didn't ever watch TV because she couldn't see it. And so she just had wasn't bombarded with all this, you know, stuff. And we used to wonder about that. I mean, look, I Ultimately, I, I get asked all the time or I sometimes get accused of saying, of basically com- conducting a science experiment. Look, we, d- we didn't choose for any of this. Um, we didn't have the option to do any of this, anything about it back then. I'm, I, what I will say is that I don't think I would have done anything about it. And I do think it's made me and our family and our world around us better people. But, but none of that matters if it makes Ruthie miserable. And that's really ultimately what matters more than anything else. And again, maybe you can assume that she's kidding herself or she's rationalizing it, but she says very clearly that she loves who she is and she loves who she is with her difference and wouldn't change it. Now, uh, ask me again in five years. She may change her mind. She, uh, she may say she wants to be able to, you know, 
go to the movies and not have to sit in the front row. She may well, say she doesn't. Five years after that, too, because there's yeah. a certain point of adolescence when the difference is particularly hard, harder than it is at any other time in in your life, right? Like I, I <laughs> um, those of us, and it's a really big group who were not actually the most normalist kid in the whole world. Maybe you know there were certain years you really felt it as a negative thing. And then later on became a point of pride, right? So it's a, it's a process. It is. And, and, and I'm trying to stay humble about that. I, I, I don't want to, uh, everything is dynamic and fluid. And, and if Ruthie decides someday that she wants to, you know, pull out all the stops and do whatever she can to improve her vision, which ultimately is the sort of main issue for her. I mean, look, the, the truth is like, she's a very blonde kid. We see blonde kids all the time who are as blonde or blonder and they don't have albinism. The only way you'd ever know and the only people who've ever been able to tell that Ruthie has albinism are people who have seen it and, and see the nystagmus. And I think of all the things that she will be, um, I don't know, uh, impacted by, you know, socially, that's probably the biggest one. It hasn't impacted her yet at 13. Uh, in terms of the vision, I think she is not, uh, she's not yet. I mean, it doesn't mean that she doesn't complain about it from, uh, from time to time. But, but again, lots of kids complain about a lot of things. I complain about a lot of, about a lot of things that I wish were different about me. But she's uh, she's able to thrive very much in this world. Now, I, I've heard from a lot of people because of all these, you know, attention that these articles got. And one of the most interesting ones was somebody who said that his mother had albinism and that she read the piece and she said that she absolutely would have edited herself and would not have wanted to go through all the things that she went through. And she obviously was a you know fully grown adult in her 60s or 70s. And I thought that was fascinating. And I, I attribute that to, to life being very different uh, back, you know, when, when I was a kid or, you know, before that in the you know, 50s, 60s and 70s, if you were a kid with differences, that it was probably a much more difficult time to live both socially and emotionally, but also there wasn't any technology. I mean, there was no iPhone. You know, this kid, if she didn't have an iPhone, she'd be in big trouble. I mean, she just walked out of this house to go visit her friend. She's going to get on the bus. I mean, she couldn't do that without her phone. I mean, her phone is her lifeblood. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm open to the idea that someday she may say, I want to make this better. I want to try and make this better. And we'll do anything we can to support that if she decides she wants to. You know, it's kind of an interesting thing is that you said in the article – which I, I think is, is, is very true, the world would be worse off with no Ruthies. And you said here earlier in the conversation that their school that remains unnamed was worse off not having the diversity. And I really get that. I mean, um, our, I teach at a genetic counseling training program for several years we had with a student who was um, completely deaf and she had translators there and uh, originally, I felt like, oh, you know, this is good for our student, who's still a friend today, and um, but maybe hard for the class. There's a lot of adapting. And by the time she left, I'm like, this was such a fantastic experience for her classmates. It was probably a hard few years for Kelly, but for the program, it was a fantastic experience. It brought a depth and a richness to every discussion we had. And the st other students embraced it in its entirety. I, I remember she was placed with several other students, none of whom knew each other at the beginning of the first year. And I thought, which shows you the limitations of my thinking, thank you. I thought, oh, this is going to be very hard on them. They didn't sign up. They didn't know they were going to have a classmate. And I, I was concerned about how it was going. And I should not have been concerned, especially since if anybody knows genetic counselors, this is the most genetic counselor story ever. But... Not only did they all live together the next year, but over the summer, all of her roommates had gone and taken sign language classes. So that oh, that's they, amazing. It was an amazing story, and they were all just felt enriched by it. Um, so no question, I think what you're saying is true, which is the world is better off. And the question is, where is the line? Because is there an extent to which we can ask individual families and individuals themselves to accept some level of burden of diseases or conditions or otherness or whatever. And, and you've brought this up a few times, and it, it, it is harder for some families than for other families because of resources. 
can you ask the individual to accept it because it's better for the world? You know, that's a really hard question for me. It, it is a hard question. And, and, you know, the truth is, like, it wasn't really a choice uh, for us. Um, and, but it is, it is a choice going forward. And, and look, I get it. I think if I had to guess that, you know, if people are doing routine pre-implantation genetic screening, um, and you know, this shows up that they're going to choose not to have this. And, and I understand it. I'm not judging them and I would never ask them to carry the burden. It is, it, you know, it has been, there have been difficult times. I'm not saying it's been completely easy, but parenting is difficult. You know, again, parenting any kid is difficult. And I can tell you that for us, it's very clear as of, as of today at, with this 13 and a half year old kid that it's been a wildly net positive, but it, it's not really about us. Right? I mean, I think those are all collateral benefits. Well, it that is it's about, been good for us. It is, it well, is about, it is, well, your voice is needed. Actually, that was my next question. It's like, so you and your wife, what do you think you would say to genetic counselors who are working with patients? Like, how do we, how do we convey that to people? Like, how do we do this? Because I, I get what you're saying. So one of the things that I found was really appealing about the article, I used this word in the beginning, is there was both a thoughtfulness and a modesty to it in the sense that you were saying, I don't have all the answers. I'm just telling you about my experience. And so I'm not asking you to change that because I think that's this in, uh, incredible part of what you wrote. And yet I am asking you... <laughs> universalize right. it for no, me like what uh, what what part of what I, we do should we be doing differently well and this gets to the to the the core of it and i think you uh, i've said this over and over again it's kind of trite but you can't until you know and i don't i don't know how you would convey as a genetic counselor i don't know how you would convey to a you know couple sitting there either you know about to get pregnant or pregnant I don't know how you would convey this to them uh, in a way where they could have had the, you know, where they would have the benefit of it having had the experience that we had. Now I'll, I'll say we figured it out pretty quickly and maybe we just had to, maybe we just had to figure out a way to, to make this something that was positive. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, the, again, the, the, the impact was so wildly positive. It wasn't just us. And to this day we hear things from people who run into her and meet her and, they're just, and they don't know anything about her. I mean, the, you know, she doesn't, she, she doesn't go off and advertise to people anything, but I mean, she plays in this competitive basketball league. And I'd say, you know, the coaches know and a couple of the kids know, but half the people out there don't even know that she has anything wrong with her vision. I mean, the, the only time they would ever know is if she said, can you just tell me what this, you know, how much time is left on the scoreboard or I'll she, never forget when she was her shooting. It, well, it's amazing. Here. So I don't know how she plays, but I do vividly remember it was a few years ago. She was playing in a big you know, game and she got fouled and she went to the free throw line and she made the shot, but she turned to the ref as he handed the ball back to her and he said, she said, did it go in? <laughs> and I think he thought, he thought, I think he thought she was like playing a game or something, but yeah. she really had no idea if it had gone in. So, I mean, yeah, I don't know how, you, how do you convey all that to a scared couple? I, you know it's what's hard. really hard about it is we have a couple sitting in front of a genetic counselor who's like, okay, they're faced with this decision, whether it's time pressured or whether they find out earlier. And you can say to them, to, to try and be the right person for everybody, you could say to them, well, why don't you talk to the Weisses? You know, and if, if they're leaning towards it's okay, we're comfortable, we can handle this, and they talk to you and they're like, you know what? look at this great kid that makes us certain we can handle it. Thank you. That's fantastic. But if in their hearts they're feeling like we really can't handle this and then we go and they meet your fantastic kid, then they feel su it's like guilt ridden, right? Like now we it's hard. It, it is. It's hard. And the, 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 I mean, we did have the benefit of talking to a bunch of people who had had the experience before us and they were all very reassuring. The difference was we didn't have we couldn't do anything about it. It's not like we could send her back and uh, we couldn't change her at that point. We had to, you know, we had to sort of learn how to live with this kid that we had. And so we were lucky to have people to help reassure us that it was not going to be terrible. But the problem is if you have the choice, 
it's just different. And, I, and again, I'm not saying that I, I, I really, I'm saying that I totally understand it. And I think I probably would make the same decision. And I'm saying, I think it's sad. I guess ultimately, like, I think that's sad uh, that we're, we're going to end up eventually in a world where a lot of these kids don't exist. And, and I don't know if there's anything to do about it. And I'm not sure what the solution is, but it does. I will just be honest and say, it makes me sad. Cause I think I would, we, we would have been a different family and not nearly the family we are if she didn't, if she wasn't here. And again, maybe she's the same kid. Maybe she'd be the spectacular, courageous, amazing, dynamic young woman. If she never had albinism, maybe I doubt it, but maybe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's hard to see it though. Right. It's hard to see them as, yep. as different. Um, and of course, I think it's very important that we say, which you have said, and to reiterate—good re- job—reiterate that in a situation where we acknowledge that this kid has lots of resources available to her, um, and there are families and places in the world where her life would be so much harder uh, because of albinism than it is in San Francisco in your home. So I think that's important to acknowledge, and also that it's a it's a condition and it has some issues, but she's not in pain, she's not suffering. Both of those things are are critical, and and I, and that's part of the reason why I think you know there's just no way for for me to begin to make a judgment for anyone else, and they have to come to the decision mm-hmm. themselves. and And I believe everyone should be supported whatever they decide to do. I just um, I'll share that, that, you know, our experience has been, been incredibly positive with the caveat being that we have, we're blessed to have, you know, financial resources and, and a tremendous circle of friends and family who've been, you know, amazing to us. And we're lucky to have found the right schools and she's lucky to have found the right friends and just everything has worked out really well. So, yeah. um, that, that's an important caveat. Well, I mean, I think it's really a beautiful story to share and I actually appreciate that you shared, and uh, um, really, since I imagine that you got Ruthie's okay to share this story, I appreciate that she is willing to share it because I, I think it is uh, an important perspective for everybody to hold on to, right? Like, uh, this isn't a, a one note answer, but for a group like a lot of my audience who are working with people who are making these decisions the idea that uh, there's a whole fully rounded person who not only can thrive with this condition, but maybe can thrive because of this condition is uh, just a valuable thing to keep in your mind. Yeah. And to the point she is um, excited. She's not a shy kid, as you might imagine. Uh, She loves to be around adults and loves to talk about herself. So um, (laughs) I don't know if, uh, I don't know if you've seen it or, and I, I, uh, or if you even know of it, but there's a, a full-length uh, feature documentary that that's, uh, was finished last year and is actually opening in theaters uh, just this now, just uh, just this year, called Human Nature, and it's a uh, it's about uh, CRISPR, the sort of uh, development of CRISPR and potential CRISPR as therapeutics. And Ruthie and and Palmer and I were were featured briefly in in the film, and they're actually going to uh, have a session. Uh, we're going to have, they'll show the film at a theater here in San Francisco. And afterwards, uh, Ruthie is, and I, and Palmer and I are going to sit up um, and do a little panel discussion. And she's really excited to do that. So she, she's taken this on as like a, uh, as something she is passionate about. I mean, really passionate about and, um, and wants to, to share her story as much as she can. Well, I think that's lovely. It's kind of a tribute to the strength of her character, but it's also, I'm going to say a tribute to you and your wife and how she's been raised that she's so comfortable with herself. I, I've often said that the best piece of parenting advice I ever got from anybody was someone who said, you can't change what your child is like, but you can have a big effect on how they feel about what they're like. And I raised three kids, maybe three and a half. If you're going to give me a little credit on a couple of others. Um, (laughs) I think that's the truest thing that anyone ever said to me Um, because really kids kind of get delivered to you like not fully formed, but pretty much who they are. You know, you, you, you find it out over time, but 
I never felt a great deal of the ability to influence key characteristics. But I think you, you as a parent, affected, have a great deal of effect of whether they're comfortable in their own skin. And so, you know, credit to you guys that you got comfortable really quickly with something that was not bad necessarily, but a big deviation from what you were expecting. And no, it was bad. Scary. I mean, we, we thought it was going to be bad. It was definitely scary. Well, thank you. I, I, we, we love taking credit for Ruthie, but, but honestly, we've done two things. I think uh, one thing is my favorite line, which is similar to yours, is you, you love the kid you have, not the one you wish you had. Yeah. Uh, and that, that goes for all of us. I think uh, you, you sometimes can think, well, I, I didn't expect to have this kid. I expected to have a kid that was more like the way I was as a kid that was going to sit around and, and read books. But this is the kid you have and you got to love that kid. And, and the other thing I think that we did, and this is probably just for, for parents. I mean, I think it's the only thing that we really can take credit for was we were uh, able to sort of suppress our fear of her being injured. And we let her do things that we probably shouldn't have let her do, (laughs) but, but that, uh, but that she demanded to do and we let her do them. And, And I think that was, that was a big part of her, having the confidence that she has now that she can do anything. There's, you will never tell her she can't do anything. She, there's something she can't do. Well, that is very cool. And that feels like a great note to wrap up on. I, I just want to, when is that film? I want to, I want to, you know, I want to be an agent for, for. Ruth oh, Taylor. sure. Well, it's, it's premiering everywhere. I'll, I'll, I'll be, and I'll, I don't have any financial stake in it. It's a documentary, uh, but it's called human nature. And I, I think it's being premiered all over the country um, but if you go to humannaturefilm.com, uh, uh-huh. you can see all the information. Include we'll put a note on the website. It is. And, we'll and put it, a note on the website along with the podcast. So anyone who's interested can go um, on the website and find that link. It's a great film, and, and I highly recommend it. Fabulous. Okay. Ethan, thank you so much for coming on today. This was a great – I really enjoyed meeting you and hearing more about her story. And uh, I, I – I am pretty sure that the rest of the genetics world out there will too. Well, thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Goodbye, and thanks to all of you who've joined us. Please follow me on Twitter at Laura Hersher. Go to the website, BeagleLanda.com, and subscribe. Thanks so much. Take care, everybody. Bye. Stay well.